Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 228 of Yoga Land. Today, I have Jason back. He's always sipping water as soon as I begin. Hello. Hi, Andrea. (laughs) (laughs) Before we start, I just wanted to mention, as I mentioned last week, that we are just about to start. You are really. I like how I say we when I just <laughs> well, sit on the you couch. Have to, you have to suffer through it indirectly. Right. Indirectly. You are starting module two very soon. The content rolls out for people April 12th, and then you start the the live calls a week later. A week later. Yeah. Um, so if you are interested in module two, doing module two or module three this year in 2021, get on it, jump on it, because we're not going to run it again. No, we are not planning to. I think the other thing to remember too is this is just a really good, complete, and deep immersion. So even if someone wasn't trying to accrue 300 hours or do all of these courses in order, this is if you need more inspiration and insight and depth and you want to join, there's that's a good idea. Yeah. And also, we are running module one. Oh, here comes our little dog. She's been tanning. She's been laying out in the sun. She comes in panting. We are rerunning module one at the end of the summer in August due to popular demand. So you can just go to our website, click on study with us and find all the details if you are interested. Don't you wish we had a camera right now? We're both, we're both kind of laughing because when our dog lays out in the sun, she's like a, she's like a 70s, 80s East Coaster. Yeah. And when she comes in, she's just panting. And it's just, it's just, it's just really Like if funny. she could have that trifold you know, oh, reflector that, yeah. thing that <laughs> yeah, mom's yeah, just yeah, she, would, totally with, she would put sun in, in her yeah, hair. Yeah. Anyway. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you're here, Ginger. We also get more obsessed with her every day. It's, it's so it's weird. It's really, really weird. That's weird. Total weird. Let's move on to yoga. Okay. So I just thought it would be interesting today to talk about, you know, I don't partake in your full trainings, but I learned through osmosis because I sit on the couch in the back of the home while you're recording up here. And what I have noticed is that, you know, like anyone, you, you just are getting more and more focused and honed it's in getting better over time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I thought we could start with what I think is really interesting is that you have started to have these really clear organizing principles about the core and yeah. what and the meaning of the core. Yeah. And that you kind of expand beyond just the physical core. Totally. So maybe we start with how you teach about the physical and then we can move into the other areas. Sure. So I just want to say real quick, whether you are joining me for module two or not, I think this conversation is equally valuable. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Because yoga practitioners have always been list makers because yogis are dealing with the regulation of the mind body complex and the transcend, the transcendence of certain human experiences. And to do that, you require a fair amount of organization. Yeah, you really do. Methodology, right? It's Buddhism too. I mean, I love it. So many Big time, right? And so all of this started, I remember this one day, it was about 15 years ago. It was in San Francisco. It was at a yoga journal conference and I was in a ballroom and I was getting ready to teach a two hour- You were getting ready to to take me to a ball. Yes, yes. Yeah, I had my top hat and my monocle on. <laughs> and I was I was ready to show you how to waltz. Um, 
But I was ready to teach this two-hour workshop on the core. And I was just in the midst of this existential crisis because it was about core and strength, right? And I remember having this moment thinking, look, strength isn't just the capacity to apply force. Strength is the ability to yield, to soften, to surrender, to let go. Like strength has so many layers to it that how am I going to talk about this in two hours? And then when I think about core in the context of yoga, I don't first think about the musculature of the body. I really don't. I think about the the original traditional context of Hatha yoga. I think about Patanjali's organization. I think about the orchestration of bones. And then I think about muscle. Hmm. So I don't really think first about core as the abdominals. I think about core as the essence of a thing, Mm -hmm. right? So let's unpack. Let's skip the strength part. That would be another interesting conversation about what is strength in yoga, Yeah, right? But a conversation to have is, well, what is core when we're thinking about yoga, right? And so the way that I have organized my thoughts around this is I really think that there are six primary visions of the core in contemporary yoga. And let's start with the first one. It doesn't have to be in this. It doesn't, to me, it's not in any particular order, right? But let's start with core, not as a material region or a material component of an entity. Let's think about core as the essence of something. It's the centerpiece of something like our relationship has a core, religious and political worldviews have a core. The core is our chihuahua. <laughs> the core, yeah, 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 yeah. the core is Sorry, our chihuahua. Just, you know. No, it's true. It used to be like trust and faith and communication <laughs> and respect. Now it's just our dog, Yeah. right? Well, she embodies all of those things. She does. I think, but the point is, is like cores that which if you remove it, that thing is not that thing. So whether it's a worldview, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a belief system, core is that which everything else hangs off. Mm. So if you remove that thing, that thing is just not that thing. If you transgress that thing, that thing is just not that thing. And when we're dealing with yoga, as much as I like to talk about body parts and how they move, um, because that's super fascinating to me, the essence of or the core of yoga has nothing to do with your abdominals. It has nothing to do with your quadratus lumborum and your transversus abdominis. It has to do with the process whereby you regulate the mind-body complex, Yeah. right? So I kind of think about, okay, this first vision of core in yoga is really the teaching of Patanjali. And Patanjali did not develop yoga. Patanjali was not the first person or the only person to define yoga. Patanjali was a borrower. Patanjali took from many different heterogeneous communities and cultures and many different worldviews and and several different belief systems. And he organized a certain set of existing principles and he put a method to it. So he organized things from the Vedas, from the Upanishads. He organized things that were existing from the Sankhya school of philosophy. Even the limbs, right? Like the eight limbs, Anga is a reference to Upanishadic rituals, Vedic rituals. So the point is, is that Patanjali 
is... He was a really good editor. He was a, a profound editor. He was a great curator. That's really what Patanjali did, right? Yeah. And so Patanjali organized many different strands that came from millennial, millennium before him, and he organized them. And he also, you know, he focused much more overtly at the time on mind-body regulation through meditation. And asana clearly wasn't a significant component of his process, but it was an integral component to his process. But the point is to understand the essence of yoga is, Patanjali is a, is a core element of that. Right. If I, right. So that's, that's not necessarily where I started that core. So going back to that workshop that I taught, I didn't start with a long conversation <laughs> right. about Patanjali's metaphysics. Also, just for the record, the eight-limb path is a relatively small component of Patanjali. It's mm -hmm. a pretty small component of Patanjali. It's the most actionable component. Right. It's the most understandable component. It's the component where we don't have to understand the metaphysics or the cosmology. And it's also the component of Patanjali where we don't have to rationalize very sort of difficult things in order to use Patanjali. To, to, under, to understand the metaphysics of Patanjali and to get to the essence of Patanjali in a modern setting is going to require us to reconsider a lot of the things that we identify as making us human. However, the eight limbs of Patanjali are very, very useful. They're very actionable, yep. right? And so understanding Patanjali and seeing his role in the essence or the core of the modern yoga practice, I think is really valuable. It's super, super, super important, right? The next core to me, we can look at this philosophically, but we can also look at this mechanically. Mm -hmm. So we can look at how original Hatha yoga conceptualized the core. So where do you place original Hatha yoga? Okay, so Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, they're dated as having been written anywhere from between 300 BCE and 200 CE. Okay. Most people think that it's closer to the 200 CE. There are artifacts. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like a, an art historian might date the development of a concept based on what was represented in art of the day. Right. There are really old symbols and really old depictions that predate the writing of the Yoga Sutra of people sitting in Pas Padmasana. Right. Like the Pushpati seal and all sorts right. of historical evidence. Mm -hmm. That is doesn't really make a case, though, that Hatha Yoga was really existing in those times. Right. Because if you see someone in Lotus from a modern perspective, you might say, oh, that person's doing yoga, right? Right. But that person was probably sitting. Mm, exactly. <laughs> right. And so, right. So this isn't something that as like a historian, I am in any amount of argument with, but Hatha yoga clearly flourished. It's peak flourishing prior to the modern era was much later than 200 CE. 
we're talking much more about the middle ages of India. So we're talking much more like 800 to 1400 CE. Right. Right. So not that long ago. So not that long I mean, ago. relatively. Not that long ago. And the vast majority of original Hatha yoga, although it's fascinating, most of those techniques, they're not still practiced today. Some of the bandhas are, for mm -hmm. sure. Some of the mudras are, for sure. Super interesting, valuable stuff. Some of the mantras are, for sure. Some of the breathing techniques are, for sure. But the majority of the kriyas and many of the mudras and bandhas, they're not still practiced because they are because you'd be arrested. You know what I mean? Like there's just, there's a lot, of, I shouldn't say I mean, that me kind of speaking loudly, but you know, the things like cutting the ligaments within the tongue to take the tip of the tongue to the back of the cranial cavity for Vajra or Kachari Mudra. In some of those traditional texts and including some of the tantric texts, there's a lot of use of bodily fluid. Yeah. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that that in a in a modern setting wouldn't. It's not going to happen at Love Story Yoga. Right. You know what I mean. Yeah. So the uh, so in a modern setting, asana, pranayama, and bandha have been focused on, whereas some of the more traditional techniques in that maybe 600 to 1200, 800 to 1200, that flourishing. They're not as focused on anymore. So I did not brush up before this interview. So is that when is that where we would place the Hatha Hatha Yoga Pradipika? Yeah. There? So the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the Garanda Samhita, the okay. Shiva Samhita, and then several of the other texts that form more of that original Hatha Yoga canon are in that time. They're in that time frame ish. Yeah. And the core in that region to me is, is really, really, really interesting, right? So I'm not talking about the core of the philosophy, but the actual core of the body. Okay. Because in the era of hot, original Hatha Yoga, arguably to some degree still now, the core was referred to largely as an interconnected set of three channels. The Shashumna Nadi, right? The central most channel, the most, most gracious channel, the Ida Nadi and the Pingala Nadi. And traditional Hatha yogis at their absolute practice core were trying to maximize the energy of the body. They were trying to regulate the energy of the body. They were trying to direct the energy of the body into the Shashumna. And they were trying to lift the energy of the body from the base to the crown. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, the traditional Hatha yogis were doing everything they could do to not let the energy of the body dissipate from the core of the body, from that most gracious channel, the Shashumna Nadi. So that's where we have the evolution of the Bandha system. If I wanted to make sure that energy didn't dissipate out of my core, if I wanted to make sure that energy didn't dissipate from my central channels, well, there's two openings. There's an opening at the bottom of that channel, yeah. and there's an opening at the top <clears throat> of that channel. So you have the evolution of Mulabandha along with Ashvini Mudra, which is evolved to seal the base, mm -hmm. right? It's to inhibit that energy leakage or malabsorption out of the bottom, and then to also seal in that energy from the top was water seal lock or 
Jalandharavanda. That's not at the mouth, that it's a, that's at the throat. So the yogis were sealing energy within the core of the body by blocking off the bottom and the top. And then if you want to increase the, the energy of the body in that region, in that core, then you increase the pressure. And the way you increase the pressure is you reduce volume. Imagine you're holding a balloon and I start to squeeze that balloon. By reducing the size of that balloon, I'm increasing the pressure inside that balloon. So Uddiyanabandha is a way of reducing the volume of the abdominal container to increase the pressure within that container, to increase the pressurization within that Shishunna Nadi, right? So understanding core in the traditional context of yoga, 100% comes down to two things. Understanding that yogis wanted to maximize and concentrate energy within their central channel. And then number two, understanding the nature of how that central channel was perceived. Mm -hmm. I think the last thing component of it is yogis were trying to have a direct experience of the divine. There was an ascending prioritization of energy through that channel. Right. That's why there's a lifting of energy up from the base chakra through the crown chakra and beyond through the Brahmanarandra, which is outside of the body and all things. But so yogis were trying to concentrate, maintain, and lift their prana. That was their idea of core. Right. And that's where we get into Kundalini awakening, right? Yeah. 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 That's interesting. I mean, I'm curious, and I don't know if we're going to go there yet, but like, how would you relate that physicality, that, you know, working with the core in traditional Hatha yoga with how you work with it now with modern yogis? Well, let's let, can we circle back to that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's circle back to it. Let's, let's kind of look at the other definitions of core. So that's two is like kind of getting, kind of getting a sense of understanding Patanjali as core, understanding the core of original Hatha yoga is core. Mm -hmm. Like those are essential. And then the third component, which I think is then going to tie in and and more directly answer that question that you asked. The third kind of vision of core in yoga to me is breathing. It's breathing. Yeah. Right? Again, think about core as the essence of a thing or think about core as the thing that if you remove, that thing is just really not that thing. And if you remove mindful or conscious breathing from any tradition of yoga. Mm -hmm. It just ain't that thing. Mm -hmm. If you remove it from original Hatha yoga, it's not that thing. If you take pranayama, even though Patanjali didn't incorporate a whole lot of pranayama, pranayama is the second to final preparation of the meditation stage. So even though Patanjali didn't wax on and give a lot of pranayama techniques, pranayama or the restriction of prana, the cutting off of one's breath, which is how he defined it, is an inextricable step within the process. Or if you go to any flow studio or any like whatever, and in pretty much any scenario in yoga where you're talking about like, what is really important? Breathing. Yeah. So understanding how breath works and understanding the anatomy of breathing, 
understanding how the body breathes, why the body breathes, and how to breathe in a maximally efficient way, to me, is an absolute core component of practicing yoga. Whether you're really interested in understanding the original stuff or Patanjali stuff, man, there's no, there's no yoga without breathing. There's no regulation of mind-body complex without breathing, mm -hmm. right? So I think to me, that's where I can start to say, look, there is no form of yoga that is, let me say it this way. Every form of yoga has always been culturally situated. Every form of yoga has always been located within culture. It's always been located within time and place. It's always been a way of meeting the population where that population needs to be met. In all forms of yoga have always been heterogeneous. They've never been homogenous. So for me, the original Hatha yoga is really fascinating, really, really, really fascinating. And I think a lot of components of it are still interesting, but I do focus most on the pranayama component the asana component, and the meditation component. I focus a little bit on the bandha component when I'm teaching pranayama, but a lot of the more kind of esoteric, I'll call them, the esoteric mudras and the esoteric bandhas and the very esoteric cleansing practices, the very esoteric kriyas, those are things that I, I, don't, I don't teach or practice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think all of this is intellectually tangible, but now we get to like more of the modern focus, right? So we had a vision of core of Patanjali as core, an understanding of the core of original Hatha Yoga as core. Breathing is absolutely core to mm -hmm. yoga. And then now we get to really the fourth vision of core to me, which is the axial skeleton, right? It's really understanding the spine and how it works, the pelvis, especially the sacrum and the sacroiliac joints and how they work, and the rib cage and how it works. Mm. Because those are all of the things that the muscular core attaches to, that the muscular core connects, that the muscular core stabilizes, and that the muscular core actually animates. So if we just think about muscular core, but we're not thinking also about skeletal core, the muscular core without the skeleton would be just an amorphous blob. You're not an amoeba. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. So it would be an ironic thing to focus on the abdominal core without actually understanding what the abdominal core actually does and what it connects to. And to do that, you actually have to understand the axial skeleton, right? We want to understand... What is the spine? Why does, how does it work? How do we maximize its functionality? What is the sacrum? What's the relationship between the spine and the sacrum and the sacroiliac joints? And then how about the rib cage? Like understanding the muscular core and understanding respiration mm -hmm. requires us to understand the thorax, the breathing, that, that chamber and how it moves, right? So to me, when I focus on skeleton, because that might sound like a lot, but the takeaways are pretty simple, right? For me, as a yoga teacher, I know what components 
of the spine I want to really focus on. And the two main components of the spine I really want to focus on are the facet joints or the facet joints and the spinous processes. Because if we understand those two components, so the spinous processes, this is very technical. I don't know if everyone's going to follow, but those are the bony, pokey, bumpy parts, <laughs> right? So if someone does like a forward bend and they don't have a shirt on, you see like the, you know, they're the part that in the opening to the Flintstones, Fred Flintstone slide to, slid down the dinosaur, he slid oh, down yay. the spinous processes, <laughs> yes. right? They're the back part of the spine. They're the pokey protuberances. And one of the reasons that those are interesting to know about and how they function in the different parts of the spine, how they're angled in the different parts of the spine. One of the reasons this is valuable to understand is the spinous processes are motion regulators. They're especially motion regulators of extension. They are not the only motion regulators. Meaning that they stop extension. Yes. Yeah, interesting. They're like a doorstop. Mm -hmm. They're like a final doorstop mm -hmm. that say, hey, you cannot go further back here. Right, right, right. So that isn't to say that they are not the main thing stopping most people in their backbends. There's a lot of other motion constraints, right? But they're the absolute limiter, right? They are your they are your last threshold of motion. So they are going to dictate the maximum amount of motion in the different parts of the spine. And also they're going to dictate the maximum amount of motion from body to body. So depending on the angle and the orientation of two different people's spinous processes, you may have very different top end potential for motion in that region. Interesting. Right? Mm -hmm. Like some bodies are organized so you can go 200 miles an hour and some people's spinous processes, no matter how hard you step on the gas, you're only going 70 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And so understanding those concepts and kind of seeing those angles can help us, I think, understand ourselves better and understand morphology better, that every body is a little different shape and that understanding and respecting the geometry of the different shape is really valuable. Yeah. It's that's... really, really valuable. And then the facet joints are the true joints of the body, not the body, sorry. The oh, facet this... joints, they're the true joints of the spine, right? The bodies of the vertebrae do not directly touch each other because there are discs between them. Or ideally, the bodies of the vertebrae yeah, exactly. don't, don't touch each other. Until you get to be about our age. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because there's a spacer. So the bodies of the vertebrae are adhered to each other, but there's a spacer. There's that fibrocartilaginous set of rings, the disc in between the vertebrae. And so those aren't true joints. The true joints of the spine or the facet joints, each vertebra has two pair of, is it pair or pairs? I'm pairs. not sure. I think it's pairs. I would say pairs, but it's yeah. probably both are correct. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so each, each vertebrae has two facet joints, top facet joints and bottom facet joints. And it's where each vertebrae directly connects to the vertebrae above and below it. One of these days, you know what we're going to have, Andrea, before too long, before the end of the year? What? You know what we're going to have? What? Video. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know <laughs> what I'm going to be doing in this video? I'm going to be sitting here in this video, 
actually showing everyone. Yes. So you will still be able to listen to this podcast, but at least some of these you'll get to watch. Yes. And you'll get to. I will get to pull out my. I'll get to pull out my very own vertebrae. It's a very specific technique I have. <laughs> uh, and we can actually see these, right? I focus a lot on understanding the facet joints and understanding spinous process as a yoga teacher, because those things tell us a lot about what parts of the spine move, what direction they move, and how much they move. Yeah. And without that, we we don't look. Everyone that has dealt with me, including you, know that I'm pretty diplomatic, and yet I have a viewpoint. I almost always have a viewpoint. There is a ton of subjectivity to how we do what we do, the technique we use, and the cues that we give. I am. It very rarely am I an absolutist. I, I don't almost never an absolutist. But there are certain pretty black and white things that you understand about how the spine moves, not first by focusing on the muscles or or even the fascia, but by understanding how the joints are angled. Because the organization of the joints kind of tell you a little bit like a traffic intersection. They tell you like what direction you can go and what direction you cannot go. Yeah. And then and then all of those other tissues that create those motions and then the there's a ton of nuance to it. But understanding some of the skeletal reality of our core is going to tell us a certain amount of object it's going to give us a certain amount of objectiveness about what we're trying to do with these these parts of our body it makes me wonder why in at least western fitness there isn't and maybe there is more now because i'm not as familiar but why there isn't more focus on the skeleton and because everything is just all about the muscles or the soft tissue can i i'm going to hasten a guess yeah is because in a lot of contemporary fitness or traditional fitness, you're not testing ranges of motion as much, hmm. right? So there's kind of nowhere within resistance training where you're trying to do like okay. the deepest twist. Right. There's nowhere where you're doing like the deepest forward fold. There's nowhere where you're doing some like honking backbend. Right. You're not testing the ranges because you wouldn't test those ranges under load, Right. And so if you're doing more like strength and conditioning, you wouldn't be putting the skeleton into a potentially compromised position. Mm -hmm. The the good fitness trainers, they'll talk a lot about the natural curves of the spine, about pelvic tilt. They'll talk a lot about the integrity of these ranges. But when you're doing strength and conditioning, you're not – you're staying more in in anatomical neutral range for the most part than what we do in yoga. In yoga, we spend a lot of time way the hell out of anatomical neutral. And that's that's good. But that's also where we get into a lot of problems. Yeah. It's because we push that, those boundaries a lot. Yeah. I just think that like it would behoove people who are interested in fitness to – like, I think it's just such an interesting starting place to start from the principle of we're all different here. Totally. Here's the skeleton to prove it. <laughs> well, for what it's worth to you, I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Like a lot of people, especially people that I try to learn from. Yeah. Whether it's like, a you know, 
whatever kind of loaded squat, that world actually does tend to be pretty good at making different allowances and accommodations in some ways more than yoga because they're a little less hemmed in by what is sometimes a patriarchal and like an authoritative lineage. Right, right, right. Right. Not that all lineages are authoritative or patriarchal, right? But they're a little bit less hemmed in by this is so old. Right, 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 right. Right. This is so old and it's always been being done like this and so forth. We're the lineage holders. There's a little bit less of that. There's a little bit more like, hey, what's the newest understanding about how the body moves? Right, right, right. Okay. You know? Yep. 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 Okay. So we're down to our last two, which is where I thought we would start, but you started in reverse, which is fine. Yeah. I started in reverse. The muscular core version one, the muscular core version two. Now, muscular core version one and muscular core version two are going to have an overlap, okay? So we've talked about four visions, Patanjali as core. We've talked about traditional Hatha Yoga as core. We've talked about breathing as core. We've talked about the skeleton as your spine, FYI, is like pretty core, Right? So now two different ways of perceiving the muscular core. And when I say muscular core, especially for the enthusiasts out there, I am including, when I say muscle, I'm including tendon, ligament, fascia. So I'm including like all all of those soft tissues and they're networking together. Of course, we aren't just talking about muscle, okay? So version one. Version one, I have spoken over the years a lot about Dr. Brian Lau. Dr. Brian, if you're out there, hello. (laughs) Anyone that's in Hong Kong, by the way, he is now one of the heads of department in a new hospital in Hong Kong. And let's get the information and let's put in the show notes because I know we have listeners all around the world. And if I was looking for a hospital, especially a a center in which I could do rehab and sports medicine, I would go there in a heartbeat. Okay. Okay. So let's put that in. Okay. So Dr. Brian Lau is, or at least he was, I don't know if he's changed positions now that he's overseeing this, this program at this hospital, but he either is, or he was the lead sport, non-surgical sports medicine doctor for the Hong Kong Olympic athletes and the the Pan-Asian Games, and just really high-level sports medicine doctor, also an awesome person and a really great yoga teacher. And he, when I was in Hong Kong last, was also teaching along with me, and he was teaching some of the anatomy and some of the injury management sections. And so this was the first place that I heard the following definition of the muscular core, which is the muscular core, definition one, are the muscles that affect intra-abdominal pressure. Okay. The muscles that affect intra-abdominal pressure. So all of the muscles that upon their relaxation or upon their contraction change the pressure of the abdominal region. So when we're dealing with this, right, we can just kind of think through them. The pelvic floor muscles, right? 
So all of those pelvic floor muscles, when you engage them and increase the tone, that changes the abdominal pressure. The diaphragm, because every time the diaphragm is moving, that's affecting intra-abdominal pressure. The transversus abdominis and the obliques. So a lot of times, yeah, okay. Because transversus being like what the, the corset. That, yeah, the deepest yeah. of the abdominal ring. And when you engage it, it it's a cincher, mm-hmm. right? It cinches in. Usually when we think about obliques, we usually think about them as, oh, they're the ones that rotate. But when you engage all of the obliques obliques simultaneously, they work with the transversus to increase abdominal pressure, Okay. right? And then on the backside, quadratus lumborum, Hmm. multifidi, and psoas. So those are all, right, those are the very deep abdominal containment units, right? Now, you could also make a case that the other muscles of the region that produce motion of the spine also affect intra-abdominal pressure more indirectly. So for example, rectus abdominis, right? When you engage the rectus abdominis isometrically or statically, you don't change intra-abdominal pressure. But if you use it to flex the spine, you're going to change the intra-abdominal pressure. So so it can be be thought of as indirectly, right? Also, some of the other more surface-level spinal muscles, right? The erector spinal muscles, because when you extend the spine, you're changing intra-abdominal pressure, right? But if you are considering the spine in a more neutral position, right? So you weren't considering the action. Then the main muscles that change intra-abdominal pressure, the main core muscles, diaphragm, pelvic floor, transverse abdominis, the pair of obliques, QL, because it's the back of the abdominal container, Mm. and psoas, because it also forms the back of the abdominal cavity, Mm. right? I find that definition really fascinating and interesting, but I prefer a second definition, which is to me, your core are all of the muscles, including all of the muscles between and including your pelvic floor and your diaphragm. Wait, say that one more time. All of the muscles between your pelvic floor, including your pelvic floor and your diaphragm, including your diaphragm. So for me, this is what I think of as the muscular core regional approach, the regional definition. So I just say, look, your body is a cylinder, Mm -hmm. right? It's a cylinder. So what is the center of that cylinder regionally? The center of that cylinder is everywhere from the diaphragm to the pelvic floor, wrapping all the way around that cylinder, Yeah. right? So those components they're going to have overlap with the other definition. So those components are going to be your pelvic floor muscles, your diaphragm, all of your abdominals, Mm -hmm. your psoas, because your psoas is the core of the core. Mm -hmm. It is the most centrally located muscle in the body, whether you're talking about the transverse or the coronal plane, it doesn't matter. It's the core of the core. And then the backside of the core are really the paraspinal muscles, including the multifidi, 
But then also it's the thoracolumbar fascia. So it's the fascial connections that run everywhere on the back body from the thorax to the lumbar, All right? So it's that thickened set of muscles. That, excuse me, that thickened set of fascia. Now that fascia blends into and is affected by the lats and by the glutes. So we could go on, right? <laughs> right. right? So again, this is kind of interesting when we're thinking about muscular core is like, we could include everything because why is the core so important? Well, it's so important for a lot of reasons, but the main reason the core is so important is everything routes through it. It's like the central bridge that is connecting the upper half of the body to the lower half of the body. And so we need it to have a high degree of functionality and integrity for the upper half and the lower half to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Muscular version one and muscular version two are very similar. They're not separate. It's just that you're you're giving people for version two, your version, a visual, and that visual includes more stuff. Yeah. So it's also kind of like, who are you talking to? Mm. And let's say you got invited to teach and with at like an elite sports conference about core say your core are the muscles that affect your intra-abdominal pressure. It's a little bit more specific. Right, right. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's a little bit more specific. Mm -hmm. It's a, like a smaller nucleus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thinking about it, the way I think about it as a region includes that nucleus, but it's a little bit bigger. Right, right, it's a, right. It's a little bit more expansive and it's going to include, I think, a little bit more stuff. The moment someone hears the phrase intra-abdominal pressure, their their mind is probably going to hurt unless there are unless they're comfortable with that language. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't who thinks of, I'm in traditional hatha yoga spent <laughs> right. all of their time right. thinking about that's the whole so that's I would uh, argue Rod Stryker spends a lot. Of time. <laughs> I'm sure he does. <laughs> right? But but this is a very interesting thing, right? Is like the scientific version of muscles core muscles as those which affect intra-abdominal pressure take us very interestingly into the world of the bandhas. Very interesting into the traditional hatha yoga world. That's so beautiful. It really is. Because those that's what they were doing. You think like in the in the hatha yoga sutras, they or the hatha yoga sutras. You think in the original hatha yoga, they were thinking about this is the rectus and this is the transversus and this is the obliques and blah 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 blah. We can think about those things now because FYI, we're not in the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. right? Amazing. We're not. It's totally so amazing. let's not pretend that we are and let's not romanticize a version. Just like, who wants to, you don't want to live in the Middle Ages. We have Netflix now. <laughs> no one wants to live in the Middle Ages. It's a hard time. Well, we have also, you know, things like skeletons that are, we can put on a screen in 3D and rotate totally. to see all these things. They just intuited these things. Which is amazing, right? Amazing. Totally amazing. The, the level of attunement, when you think about that, the level of attunement to that level of mind-body connection and attunement to physiology and anatomy and structure, it makes me wonder, you know, if they had a similar level of emotional attunement and how incredible that would be. My guess is knows, yes. But, My yeah. guess is yes. And and so here would probably be the upsides of the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. There probably weren't many distractions other than surviving. Surviving mm -hmm. probably took a lot of time. 
and a lot of efforts. Mm-hmm. But the quality of interoception, right? The quality of self awareness. I mean, even the conversations about Ida and Pingala Nadi, as Ida Nadi. I, th- I hope I don't get this wrong. I think I'll get this wrong, right? But Ida Pop, Ida Nadi, being translated as the comfort channel. Ida Nadi is associated with the left nostril. It's associated with moon or lunar energy. It's associated with deep relaxation and calm. It is the one in contemporary science that's correlated to actually affecting the parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah. So breathing through the left nostril, in fact, stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. The right side, the Pingala Nadi, is correlated in traditional yoga to the solar channel, right? It's correlated to stimulation. It's correlated to elation. And in contemporary science, it is correlated to the stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. And those those two channels, and Yogi's always said that those two channels went back and forth in a rhythm. Yeah. That is, in fact, currently under science, that is verified. About every 90 minutes, it, it changes, but about every 90 minutes, one or the other side becomes more dominant. It's just unreal. It's insane, yeah. right? So, so this is ways in which the profound, I think of, of original Hatha Yoga, the profound wisdom of embodiment, the profound wisdom of interoception, which is just now measurable and less anecdotal. But as it's measured, so much of the anecdotal components weren't just anecdotal components. That's it's remarkable. I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here. I, I, I promise I won't go for too long. I'm thinking a lot about neurodivergence lately because we've really learned that our family is more neuro, neurodivergent than we ever knew. And I'm sure I, I mean, I have elements no, of it as well. No, you totally, you're like. <laughs> I'm like so vanilla. Anyway, so it makes me wonder, when you think about that level of attunement, and uh, it would require quite a bit of hyper-focus. Yes. Right? Which is considered to be a trait in neurodivergent communities. So it makes me wonder if, there were the the people in the community that were focused on the survival and that were going out and killing things and finding plants for everyone to eat. And then there were the neurodivergents who were playing Minecraft. Look at that. I just <laughs> I just tied the original yogis to neurodivergents. There's always been neurodivergents. I know. Of but course. what I'm saying is maybe that was their role. Mm. The hyper focus would make you and also the sensitivity i mean there's a lot of sensory sensitivity in neurodivergence right so you can really use that to your advantage in a modern world and probably also in that world there are lots of ways where this sensory sensitivity can be overwhelming can lead to shutdown can lead to you know aversions to tastes and smells and feelings i don't know what you're talking about right but on the flip side that sensitivity could could help you with that that level of interoception. Could help you focus and talk for long periods of time about <laughs> the spinous process. Exactly. Maybe. Yeah. I want to say one final thing. I think 
again, this is kind of going back to the course. Regardless of whether or not you ever join me for one of these courses or not, think about core in the most expansive way you can. You know, where we really are thinking about it in not a reductive way, where we're just thinking about our material physicality. Don't Let's not deny our material physicality, right? And let's work with our material physicality. Like having strong muscular core is really valuable to the functioning of your body. Having integrity in the spine, understanding how to position the pelvis, breathing, like these shouldn't be underestimated. These are so important. But also as a yoga practitioner, especially as a yoga teacher, whether you teach this way or not, we always want to remember that this practice is touching and relating to all of the faculties of our humanness. And it is touching and affecting the philosophical components, the psycho-emotional components, the having different visions of core and including history as part of that vision of core is really valuable. To know that we are part of a profoundly diverse and heterogeneous set of communities and cultures over time, exploring who they are and cultivating self-knowledge and passing that on, that's really helpful. That's much more helpful than just focusing on you know, how to engage the the rectus abdominis and bakasana. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jason. Can we include this handy-dandy little handout um, on the show notes page? Is it just like a simple download? Yeah. Okay. Of course. <laughs> it's a page from the manual. Um, it's going to cost 10 cents. But it's just... <laughs> let's, put a pay up, let's put a paywall up. Oh, you have to <laughs> register for something. It's just a nice visual that people I don't care if it's a nice use. visual. Visuals aren't free. <laughs> Well, how about they they give us our email address in exchange for it? Nope, I want ten cents. It's like a copy. It's like going to Kinko's. <laughs> You're making ditto. It's like, yeah. If you want this, is you send me ten cents. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'll, I'll, okay. you know what we'll do? Pass out our Venmo. <laughs> Just stop. Okay, everyone. Yeah, they can have it. It's free. All right. You know what? Never mind that ten cents. It's free. I'm feeling generous today. So go to Yogaland Podcast dot com slash episode two two eight to get your send me a nickel. Cents your 10 cent copy of just all it is guys it's just a visual of just, <laughs> it's just not even worth a nickel it's not worth a nickel but if you want to just have something to remind you of what we just spoke about i thought it would be interesting i will never go down this route again yes so Thank you all for listening and until next time, enjoy your practice.